Hey guys, before we get started with this edition of the Entertainment from the 573 Podcast, the pod ran a little bit longer than we expected to, ran a little over two hours, so our plan is we're going to split these two up. You're going to get the Comic-Con talk of the show first, all that stuff, along with our thoughts on trailers, the MCU, along with Peter's update of his DCEU, and then a little bit later on, you're going to get our edition of the show where we're talking about Lion King, Stuber, Crawl, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So that should be coming out soon. With that being said, everybody, enjoy the show. Welcome back, America, to the entertainment from the 573. Thanks for joining us yet again. God knows how long it's been. Since we've done a real entertainment episode that wasn't just a list. But it, we're back. It's me, Peter Lewis, and I'm joined by Ryan McDaniel. Ryan, how's it going? I'm doing good, Peter. Yeah, and plus, we gotta talk about, you know, Peter, I, we talked about this. Are we gonna start the Church of Tarantino here officially on the podcast? Well, I started that years ago, but yeah, officially on the pod, we can acknowledge it exists. Yep, so everybody, welcome to the Church of Quinn Tarantino. It's officially starting on this uh, episode 35 of Entertainment. Surprise it took us this long. One day after the uh, release of his newest ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his supposed second to last film. We'll see if that takes to you. And we'll, we'll get to that. But, of course, we'll talk about that. We got that new Lion King movie. Stuber and Ryan saw Crawl as well. I just saw Once Upon a Time, believe it or not. That's all I've done so far. Yeah, I went and pulled a double feature last week. And we're going to end it with DCU, not because they did good at Comic-Con. I mean, they realistically just took the biggest L I've ever seen <laughs> in a in my life. No, it's my DECU. Yep, the one that matters. Gonna, yeah, it's going to be a kind of a quasi-Comic-Con panel to explain what it's going to be. Because, and we'll get to that when we get there, because uh, the original one, well, in true uh, Warner Brothers DC fashion, uh, completely rebooted from the ground up, because a certain uh, somebody who's not here, Matt Mormon, <laughs> is just a little too impatient and doesn't want to wait for Superman films. So, yeah, there we go. Give me my Man of Steel sequel. I don't want to wait two years. <laughs> I don't even want to wait one. Made a synopsis for 43 films of what it could have been, and we didn't even get, like, four in before matt was like no this is dumb (laughs) best part about this is matt's not here to defend himself so that's my favorite part (laughs) nope and i'm right there with you (laughs) so yes don't worry we have not forgotten about it it will happen and we're gonna dedicate the end to explain my my thought process and what it's gonna be and we'll of course have to do it in parts because there's no way we can get through a whole cinematic universe in one go. Yeah, this is not new. I mean, this is not new mutants, everybody. It's like imagine explaining the MCU in a pod, <laughs> like you can't do it. Oh man, yeah. That's that's why Kevin Feige made uh, phases. Uh, shout out to Papa Feige. Yeah, but even then, state phase three is like six years long to explain. So yeah, but yeah, we'll get there and to strap in everybody and let's get straight on to it. Ryan, you saw a bunch of films. Let's start talking about them. Yeah, so we're going to start off first with The Lion King. That has done gangbusters at the box office. Despite uh, mixed reviews. Yeah, mixed reviews. And 
Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you this, Peter. Uh, nothing can live up to the original Lion King animated film. Nothing can. This can't. Uh, this film can't. And and be honest, living up to it is really hard because that animated film is basically perfect. Mm-hmm. And I, but I think John Favreau coming in, he knew what he could do with this type of setting with, with CGI and all this stuff. He did with Jungle Book, and that got high praise for uh, his version. And so, you knew coming in, like, this is going to be tough to make it a worthy uh, type of adaptation to the original. But I'll say this. For me, it was fine. I'll I'll tell you the best parts. The best parts were, and I heard this before I went in, saw the theater, I completely agree, John Oliver as Zazu, he was amazing, and then Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen as Timon and Pumbaa. <laughs> I mean, listen, Peter, if you're gonna cast anybody as Pumbaa, Seth Rogen fits it to a T. Oh yeah, like it, it, you can't get better. And Billy Eichner was fantastic as Timon. It, it, they, they were just incredible, but I. So, it's not a live-action film. It's technically an animated film because, again, all these are computer-generated images. Just very high-quality animation to where the point, it looks like real life. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, because obviously I haven't seen it, but I'm not above, you know, crapping on movies I haven't seen. Was was it hard to differentiate the characters? Because that was my thing watching the trailers. I was like, you know... It was easy to identify Timon and uh, the lines, I should say, because, you know, there were different art styles. But here in the trailer, I was like, they look exactly the same, which I get because you're going for that real world aesthetic. But I think that kind of challenges the charm of the original. Yeah. Well, listen, for me, it wasn't hard because I could differentiate. Oh, like, oh, that's Mufasa, that's Simba. That, the voices probably helped in that regard, I imagine. Yeah, the voices helped. I'll say this: Glover and Beyonce—they were fine. Uh, it one world beater, but uh, they were fine. They they did their parts, and there's one part like if everybody knows it when like the Akuna Matata number is on, and you have Simba revealed as this adult lion now. What that note he hits when he comes out with the reveal, Donald Glo- Donald Glover did that perfectly. And so that was a good reveal. It you had a little bit more to the film there. You had this whole thing with Nala about her trying to escape the uh, Scar's reign and try to sneak past him and the hyenas and all this stuff. And now, and I will tell you this: another good part of the film was I can't pr- think I can't pronounce the dude and the guy's name, but you know the guy that plays Mordo in Doctor Strange. Yeah, he voices Scar, and he did a good job of voicing Scar. Like, yeah, sure, um, Jeremy Irons, he, he voiced Scar in the animated version, and he did a good job with that, but this this guy did a good job as well with that part. And the Be Prepared number, I know some people are talking about was a little bit watered down. I know some people did kind of like it. It was kind of like a chant, like, Be Prepared, Be Prepared. It wasn't like the song in the movie. But yeah, for me, it was... Just fine. It doesn't live up to the animated. It's very tough to do so. Even when you got Disney and Favreau and an all-star voice cast. 
And like everybody did awesome, except like there's a few that stood out. Of course, you got James Earl Jones with Mufasa. Uh, like he, if you could bring any, like you had to bring him back. It's like it, he's iconic with this. Mm-hmm. It, it's he's synonymous with that, and he's synonymous with Darth Vader. Two completely, mm-hmm. two characters on different spectrums, but. It's like it's like J.K. Simmons as uh, Jameson. Like you can't really do anybody else. No, you can't. But for me, the the film was fine. It's certain. It's a funny film, and a lot of that attributes to Timon and Pumbaa and all this stuff. But for me, the film was it was above average. I, I'm not gonna give it the. I'm not around the score that it's on Ron Tomatoes. I believe it's like what in the fifties still. Uh, last I checked, I think it was like 56. So I think I... But again, remember, Rotten Tomatoes is the percentage of people who gave it a positive. That's not the actual score. I'll check the Metacritic for you, because that's more of the average of actual scores. If I had to give it a score, I would give it a 6.5, and the most I would go is a 7. It, it, was, okay. it was fine. It was enjoyable. It had its laughs. It had its moments. But another thing for me... It kind of felt like you were going through the motions. Like, you knew what the big scenes of the Lion King were. Or like, Mufasa's death, how that's a big turning point. Yeah, the Circle of Life number. Like, the Circle of Life number was awesome. It was almost exactly shot for shot with the animated film. Mm-hmm. That was my next question. I mean, does it really do anything different? Because that's what I remember watching the uh, Cinderella, Jungle Book, and Beauty and the Beast live actions. I was just like... I've seen this before, but now it's real. Yeah. And I was kind of just watching, like, why? <laughs> yeah. Now, in the case of the Jungle Book, I thought the acting was top-notch and the visual kind of helped it more. So that's really the only one I truly have liked on a good scale. Yeah. Um, the, there's a couple different things. Like, uh, I was expecting, like... um. Oh, there's one moment towards the end that I was really getting ready for to hear Seth Rogen say this. He, the line where, like, it's that final battle and, like, did you just call me a pig from the uh, anime film? I was like, I can't not, I can't wait for that line with Seth Rogen's going to be awesome. And never happened. It was like, it changed. Like, did you just call me chubby? <laughs> I mean, it, I guess you can say it's kind of synonymous, but it's different. Let me tell you, Pumbaa actually uh, really wrecks the hyenas in this one. Uh, like they stand a chance I guess having uh, a warthog like Pumbaa really helps in a fight against them but yeah no this film for me it's fine I did have a good time at it it was enjoyable again it it was going to be very tough to live up to the original animated film anyway so Mm -hmm. but I still think this movie is going to play well with audiences people are going to get introduced to that and it's doing well at the box office I mean, Disney just about said they'll keep making these until they don't work anymore. They flop, so it's safe to assume they're going to continue. I think the next one's uh, 101 Dalmatians, which could be interesting. Because the live-action ones of the 90s kind of left more to be desired. So I kind of think that would be fun to explore. Yeah, like, I know they're planning on doing a Corella film. Mm-hmm. And I know, as far as uh, Disney remakes or live action stuff, I know Mulan is coming down the pipeline. I think next year, to be to be sure. But yeah, no, yeah, I, I agree with you there. 
I think before we leave off here, there's actually one thing we forgot to mention off the top. Actually, a couple of big things. And these all three are kind of connected with Disney, especially one with live action. Aladdin officially crossed the billion dollar mark, mm-hmm. which for me, Aladdin was good. I didn't expect it to hit that. So props to them for being able to cross the billion dollar mark with that. See, that's one that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me because Will Smith still has the uh, box office appeal and it's one of the more celebrated ones, I would say. Yeah, but I will say this. We live in a different age or like it. It doesn't matter who the big star star is. If you have a good story and a good plot, people will come and see it. And if you, you have a bunch of good stuff in it, people will come. I, I think we're in a different age. Sure, but I think star power and identity... Uh, recognition counts for that yeah, too. It helps but it doesn't help as much as it did like 25 30 years ago. Yeah. Now Aladdin was the one that actually got good reviews, I think. Yeah, Aladdin was pretty good. I I remember the reviews being all right for that. I wonder if that has to do with cuz it's more of a human story so it's easier to connect to cuz The Lion King, I think what made it work was it was animated. You were aware that, you know, this wasn't real, but you went along with it anyway because how it was created. Where now it's like, oh no, here here it is for real. And it's like, okay. Yeah. Or, it, like I said, I, I haven't seen it, so I mean, I can't trash on it too much. I'm just saying, I think Disney is short is uh, cutting themselves short with their creativity here. That's been my big complaint with this whole uh, experiment. Yeah, and then a couple other things. Another film crossed the billion dollar mark. We talked about it. I think on the last Entertainment Pod, Spider Man Far From Home, it crossed the billion. It crossed the billion dollars, and that means all three MCU films have crossed a billion dollars this year. And I believe, now this is a crazy stat here, Peter. I believe I heard there's a certain number, it was like 1.5, 1.6, that if Far From Home got to that point, the, the total average of what all 23 MCU movies would have made would average out to a billion dollars. <laughs> that That's just nuts. That, and the, they're not slowing down anytime soon. And speaking of something that didn't slow down, I'm thankful it didn't slow down, Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. Finally topped Avatar. We did it, everybody. Yes, we did. We won. A film that will actually be remembered because of story and characters is number one. Yeah. Now you. Now we cue the people who will say, well, Gone with the Wind adjusted for inflation. <laughs> I don't care about your inflation rates. <laughs> I care about the actual number. Plus, Gone with the Wind was in theaters for like four or five years, so I mean... <laughs> I wish we had an in-game in the theaters for that long. I wish uh, Mad Max Fury of Row was still in theaters. Oh, man. Well, there's going to be some more of those films coming down the pipeline, I've heard. So, Well, if WB can get their uh, act together, which, you know, that's the <laughs> that's easier said than done. Yeah. And so, yeah, I know, I think we talked about this in the group chat. I think once Avatar 2 comes out, I think... Once that gets closer, they'll put Avatar back out. Make sure to have that. Make some more money. Be the number one film in the world again. And advertise Avatar 2 as, this is the sequel to the number one film of all time. Mm. I mean, it kind of makes sense from a marketing standpoint and from Disney standpoint since they own Avatar now. 
but yeah we'll get into avatar 2 as it gets close to release because that's just such an interesting thing like it's been a decade well actually well over it's gonna be over a decade after this year yeah and they've already approved four sequels so part of me thinks they don't even need to do that because if they're confident they can make four sequels to this movie what's the point of even re-releasing the first one yeah that's a that's a fair point like say, but again, we have so much to talk about, and yeah, all all we know for now is Avatar is not number one. All is right in the world. Suck on that, James Cameron, you fraud. <laughs> Used to be good, and then you made trash. <laughs> and he's got trash coming down twenty twenty one. Yeah. <laughs> all right, a couple other movies I saw. I went and treated myself to a double feature last week. I think it was yeah, it was last week. It was last Friday to be exact. Windsaw Stupor, Windsaw Crawl. I'll tell you this, Peter. The, the, this is going to get a little bit weird here. So, Stupor, I found it more hilarious, and that tends to be the winner for me. But Crawl was the better movie. And so far on Rotten Tomatoes, people seem to agree with that. Yeah, Crawl is getting much better reviews than I expected. I know Raimi's good with schlock and B-movie stuff, but I just didn't feel like... With modern reviewers, that would be good for 2019, but I guess I was wrong. And I'll tell you what, Peter, we live in such a time where we're all interested in the connected universes. We're like, oh, this one, this thing is connected to this movie. That means they're both connected. But mm-hmm. with Crawl, it's a simple idea, and sometimes simple ideas work. Mm-hmm. And if you can get your idea down to a T and do it really, really good... It's going to be successful. It's a film that satisfies that summer popcorn movie demographic, which is what we want. Yeah. Because I agree. Sometimes you just want something that's its own thing. It doesn't have to be, you know, this interweaving thing or based on a property from years ago. It can just be a, a little idea. Like, uh, from the looks of it, it's just what? It's a hurricane. They're trying to survive and there's gators. Yeah. That's great. And it's Sam Raimi. So what more do you need? Yeah, uh, Spider-Man showing up. <laughs> but no, yeah, Crawl, I, I mean, both these films were fairly short. Both of them were around an hour and a half. Both were e- easy watches. Stuber, of course, he had Dave Bautista, Kumal Johnny, And like I said, that it, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. I, I, I'll tell you that. It, it was very funny. Uh, Bautista was blind. His character was blind for some parts of it, so parts of that were funny, <laughs> just, just to see that going on. And uh, they had this ridiculous fight in this kind of like sporting goods store that Kamal Najani's character works at, and they're just fighting with all these sporting goods stuff. It's like, this is nuts. <laughs> but I, I, it was a good time. It was hilarious. So Stuber was the funnier movie. Crawl was the better one. That one, when it's intense, I'll tell you, with Crawl, the first, like, maybe 10 to 15 minutes or so, kind of a little bit slow, but after that, it picks right up. Everything's intense. Uh, the, the alligators are scary. And you know what's the scariest part, Peter, about it? They uh, She goes to the University of Florida. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That's the scariest part of all. She's, she's going to transfer to Florida State after this. That. <laughs> but, no, those are my, uh, uh, those are my thoughts on Super and Crawl. If you want to go check them out, I'm pretty sure they're still out, but who knows, because they may not be, because we have this crazy film we'll talk about next, Peter.
that is really good. Now we're going to go into detail, but we'll do the initial just basic thoughts and no spoilers. Check in the description for when we skip to our Comic-Con, because that's when we'll... Because by then we'll we'll give you the spoiler warning, and then you can skip ahead. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's been a long four... Close to four years since Mr. Tarantino last graced us with his uh, cinematic expertise in Hateful Eight, which uh, felt like to be his most mixed film. Even next to Jackie Brown, which... I think it was more because it came after uh, Pulp Fiction. That's why people were mixed on it, but over the years it's kind of been more appreciated. Hateful Eight following uh, Inglorious Bastards and uh, Django Unchained. I don't think people expected that kind of like novel-esque film with, you know, the violence. And here, as we come to, which is supposedly his second to last film, because for those not to know, uh, Tarantino said he was only going to do ten films. He's kind of hinted at, yeah, I can always change that, but just from his mind, and I kind of agree with him, it feels better to do. Because the more films you do, the more fraudish you feel, I would say. Unless you're like Martin Scorsese, which, you know, not everybody can be. Yeah, and I'm sure... But I think Tarantino could. And, and I'm sure Tarantino has way more ideas. Oh, yeah. You know, like I say, from what we know now supposedly this is his second to last film but again take that with a, a couple grains of salt but yeah once upon a time in hollywood it's uh leonardo DiCaprio's first acting role in uh, nearly four years he hasn't done anything since the revenant which feels like a lifetime ago he, at this point he really hasn't done anything since then it's he's done like two narrations for nature documentaries and all that but nothing acting wise huh which is mind-blowing i guess that's what happens after you win your first oscar yeah <laughs> or if you're just dicaprio you just know you're good yeah and he he has done such such good work with uh tarantino especially in django unchained i mean i think those are just two like very dynamic acts that just mesh so well together because uh dicaprio has improved so much for me over the years because i did not like him for a long time but then Shutter Island came out, and he just started getting better with Django and Wolf of Wall Street just being the crown jewels of what he can do as a talent. And then he did The Revenant. and Yeah, The Revenant's kind of a uh, mixed bag for me, but hey, at least he won finally. Yeah, he finally got what he wanted. All he had to do was just eat a fish raw, and that was uh, the cat. He's like, all right, here's your award. <laughs> I, bet, I bet he was like, is this all I had to do to win an Oscar? Seriously? <laughs> I still think he should have won it for Wolf of Wall Street, but hey, that that's neither here nor there. Yeah. But he he's back, kids. He's back. Oh, man. He's so good in this film. And also, uh, Brad Pitt is here. I don't remember the last thing he was in. I'll look it up, but I don't think he's been anything huge as I Google him and realize, oh, no, you were in a big film recently. <laughs> yeah, Brad, he was good in this film, too. He plays uh, DiCaprio's character's uh, stunt double, which <laughs> you know you are just super... <laughs> if you're a Leo, you know you're so cool when Brad Pitt, of all people, is portraying your stunt double. <laughs> That's when you know you're in a good place. Uh, I will say the two of them were just fantastic in this. Oh, man. That's such a good combo. DiCaprio's like whole, you know... And it's in the trailer, so it's not really a spoiler. You know, this has been actor you know the 
the glory days are behind him. He's becoming an afterthought. He's becoming, you know, typecast, basically. Yeah. And, uh... Pitt being his, you know, stunt double and friend and driver because uh, DiCaprio's character got one too many DUIs, <laughs> which was, that explanation was hilarious why he has to drive him around. It, it's, I will say, it is a quintessential Quentin Tarantino movie. That sounds awkward to say out loud. <laughs> so many thousands. Uh, I would say, first of all, I enjoyed the film a lot. It's definitely one of his high quality films. I don't think it cracks his top. It cracks his top five for me, but I definitely enjoy it more than I'd say Kill Bill and uh, the one he did with uh, Rodriguez for the Grindhouse. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but uh, I'll tell you a couple points here, Peter, with the film that kind of stood out to me. You mentioned the point where like Leo's character Rick Dalton is being typecast and. You kind of had Al Pacino's character kind of talk to him about that and like him maybe heading out the door soon. I think one of the things that's honestly kind of relatable is the stuff with age and how we deal with that. Like, when do we mm-hmm. when do we know when we're at our peak? When do we know we're on the downslide? Stuff like that. And this film, particularly Leo's character, deals heavily with that. And that's that's really relatable. And another thing too. With Tarantino, this film, this is a love letter to Hollywood. I mean, basically, the title says it. To Hollywood in the late 60s. It's kind of... That's one of the, the surprising things for me, because I was expected, if he was, like, truly going to go hard into a decade, it was going to be the 70s. Because that's where a lot of his exploitation love has come from. But it was interesting to see him go to this decade and the setting it was in, which is uh, 1969 Hollywood... And it's also the good uh, foil, because Margot Robbie's also in this as uh, Sharon Tate, which we'll get to her more more or less in the spoiler part. It was interesting, because she had pretty much no lines for the most of it. No, she didn't. So, And it makes sense when it comes to the end, but she was like a great... Her character is more of a foil for Rick Dalton. You know, this once great actor who's on his downturn... And his next door neighbor is Polanski <laughs> and uh, Sharon Tate. The, at the time, the up and comers of Hollywood. Yeah, it was a very interesting thing to see and how they played with that. But also, it was kind of interesting because uh, when Sharon Tate, uh, played of course by Robbie, goes to see uh, her movie, The Wrecking Crew, which IRL turned out to be one of her last films, or I think she had one that was a post death release. I can't remember off the top of my head. How she's, you know, in the theater watching it, how people are reacting. But, of course, beforehand, she's uh, not known at that point. Yeah. She has to explain to the uh, ticket person that, uh, oh, I'm in the movie. I'm Sharon Tate, yada, yada. There's kind of hint that even she knows that her star won't last forever. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting because, you know, that's what DiCaprio's feeling. And there's a very good scene where uh, DiCaprio's on set for uh, a movie he gets cast in. His character, Rick Dalton, I should say. And uh, he's with, like, a younger actress. Yeah. And she said she was eight years old. Yeah, I love that scene. First of all, uh, buy some stock in whoever that actress is. If she's hanging with Leonardo DiCaprio and however old she is, we got a star on our hands. (laughs) Yeah. I was amazed by that. But, you know, he's like, uh, 
they're talking about the books they're reading. Uh, she's reading a biography about Walt Disney, and she's like super intelligent. Like he's such a fascinating man. <laughs> I was just, I was just <laughs> like, hey, Colin, I know you hate uh, Quentin Tarantino, but he's giving your boy Walt Disney the big, big push. <laughs> and of course, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is reading a book about you know a, a cowboy. And he starts realizing the parallels between the cowboy's life to his, how, you know, he used to be the hottest thing in the terms of, you know, uh, horse ranching or whatever it was. And then he, uh, his ki- the character in the book got hurt and couldn't do it anymore. He like, starts breaking down. <laughs> but he's trying to make it not obvious that it's about his life. It's like, just a sad, it's a sad story now that I realize it. <laughs> it. It was, it was pure Tarantino at its finest. It was... That idea that it's hilarious, but at the same time you realize, oh, this is sad. Yeah, and Peter, uh, I think a couple things here. Uh, a couple scenes before that, when he's just like breaking down in his trailer. Oh, that was good. Oh my, that was freaking great. I, I will say, this. while it's Tarantino at its best, it's also him at his worst. But in a good way, because... You have to be very patient with this film. He does not get right to it. He, in this film especially, and Hateful Eight started it, but here it hits all out. It's like a very slow burn. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of establishment of what's going on, the situation. Like, we don't really get to uh, Spawn Ranch, is where the Manson family was, uh, up until, like, an hour before the film ends. And this is a, like, two... Two and a half hour film? It's over two and a half hours. Yeah, because, I mean, 90 minutes, the first 90 minutes is just what's uh, DiCaprio's story, what's Pitt's story, and what is Sharon Tate doing? And I will tell you this, Peter, circling back to that scene with Sharon Tate in the theater, Mm -hmm. one interesting fact about that is, is that the Bruin Theater, I think, is actually where... They are uh, where I think maybe they had the premiere there, or something mm-hmm. like that, or like it wouldn't surprise me. Or like, and somebody said, like, what if Margot Robbie just goes there watching this film, watching her watch herself, or something like that? Yeah. But I really do love that scene and the reactions that she gets out of all the out of all the people, and of course in this time period, it, like the world's going uncertainty. I think Vietnam was getting close to happening, or. Oh, yeah, you got the, uh, one of the Manson girls that, uh, Pitt picks up, you know, talking about, you know, the real problems in Vietnam, brother. Yeah, and so I guess it's like, that's a good representation of just like, if you can make some people laugh during something like as dark as that, I think you've done your job. And I think that... We should also, we should also say that Rick Dalton's character hates hippies. (laughs) (laughs) Which, especially when we get to the end, was just very good. Do we need to go into spoilers now? Uh, what are some other things I want to say? Uh, it, the, I will say I, I love the aesthetic. I love yes. just how it, it kind of, it tests your knowledge of Hollywood. Because oh. uh, Lancer was actually a TV show back in the day. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's real. And then they said some movies. I was like, I don't think that was real, but I know that's real. Uh, the guy who played uh, Bruce Lee, I think I've talked about this before when he was cast uh He's a guy that uh, is a martial artist in real life and actually portrayed him in some other things. Yeah. Like, he idolizes the guy. So I kind of thought 
hey, good on that guy getting to portray, you know, his legend, uh, his, his hero, I should say, in this film. That was a cool touch. Yes. And how it wasn't just, you know, a pointless cameo, like it did tie into the Sharon Tate thing later on because of uh, her one of her scenes in uh, The Wrecking Crew. Which I so say, uh, kind of helping your point of how her star power was at the time, you know, Dean Martin, the one of the kings of cool at the time, was in that movie with her. So it just goes to show you how up and coming she was before her, of course, untimely death by the uh, Manson family. Uh, I did love the, uh, oh, the, the, uh, Playboy Mansion scene was great. Cause, uh, they had two women portraying, uh, Cass Elliot and Michelle Phillips from the, uh, Mamas and Papas. And they looked just like, uh, Cass Elliot and Michelle Phillips. I was like, did they revive Cass Elliot? <laughs> <laughs> and of course there was Steve McQueen. Uh, I forget who played it, but he was. Oh, Damian Lewis. Like, yeah, thank you. Just for that, like, little scene of him, like, commenting on Hollywood and all that. I was like, that, w- that was nice. There's, like, again, you have to be patient with it and realize what he's trying to do. Because Tarantino's not, you know, a straight... We're so used to, you know, everything's leading up to something. It's moving in a direction. Here, it just kind of feels like, when's the film going to start? Yeah. Uh, that's all I really have to say about that oh Bruce Stern was fun as uh George Spawn as well as the whole scene where uh Brad Pitt goes to uh Spawn Ranch. But yeah, so um without further ado, I think oh, I, do you have I think I found the girl who played uh who played that young actress. I think her name is let me see if I'm Julia Butters. Okay. Okay. And I'm looking at Wikipedia as uh, Trudy Fraser inspired by Meryl Streep. Uh she she was just great, and and that scene, like after we, you know, after he Leo's character gets his crap together, and we had that scene where like he he's acting all tough and like they call cut, uh, like that that was a really good scene right there. And of course, you've seen this in the trailer where she's like, "That was some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life." <laughs> I'm looking at that, Peter. I I know this is supposed to be a what Matt would say a prestigious movie for all the Oscar people, but. But that that's a meme waiting to happen right there. <laughs> this is a film that I need to remind me that I like film and don't hate it. Because <laughs> the amount of trash just comes out, I'm just like, what happened to this? <laughs> Used to mean something. <laughs> but yeah, uh, absolutely, DiCaprio and Pitt will get a nomination for sure. Oh, they sh- they should. Oh. I think Pitt. I think Pitt has the best chance of winning because he was a he was convincing as just that suave guy from out the whole film yeah i also want to say i think his backstory with his wife was a ref- reference to natalie wood but i'm not 100 percent sure but just you know again nice touches there like if you're aware of the time frame of you know the late 60s and you know world history and hollywood just so many easter eggs i mean this is <laughs> I'd see it again because it's Tarantino, and I always do, but I think for this one, it's got to be like, what did I miss? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that you could have missed. But uh, without further ado, if you have not seen it, check the uh, description. We should have a little marker or a timestamp to say skip here. But if you've seen it, we'll uh, talk about it right now. So, uh, Ryan... 
here's the thing. I knew going into this with Tarantino, he was going to do something different. Yeah. But I still thought Sharon Tate was going to get killed. Oh, I did too. I was like, I'm waiting then, for this to happen. But then I heard something interesting that uh, he discussed the film with the uh, Tate family. Her descendants, of course. Yeah. And they gave a blessing to it. I was like, how did Quentin Tarantino get a blessing to basically gut the you know late family member? Like, he, how suave can you be to do that? It's like, hey, you know uh, your uh, family member Sharon who was brutally murdered? Can I do that on screen just to exploit it? <laughs> oh, f- yeah. It's like, I want that charisma skill. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, Sharon Tate not only survived, she's not even in any peril. No. Her character, because I remember the controversy was Quentin Tarantino didn't give her any lines. And, of course, it's very, very obvious in the film. And kind of a distraction at a point. I was like, "What? what is going on here? Did they, like, accidentally delete some of her footage? <laughs> and no. Uh, the point was, at least to me, her character was not only to be kind of like a foil slash parallel to uh, Rick Dalton. I think she was just a red herring. The whole... Because everyone going in probably knew about the Manson murders. Because, you know, her murder was easily the biggest of that whole spree. Yeah. So you're you're expecting like, oh, Margot Robbie, Sharon Tate, kind of similar vein, rising actresses, yada yada, getting it killed. And that's not what happens. What happens is the night of the, when uh, Charles Manson ordered Tex and them to go to the uh, uh, Tate house, the Polanski house, and shit to kill him, they're uh, outside, and of course they're neighbors to uh, Dalton. And the car is just loud, and Rick Dalton just goes out and just starts yelling at them. Oh, man. <laughs> like, get off! Get out of here, you hippies! Go smoke a joint somewhere else! And, of course, they leave. And, of course, like, oh, we've been, we've been spotted. And one of the, uh, the girl, the Manson girls is like, you know, when I was tripping, I had this idea that we were taught murder by these, you know, celebrities on TV. Because if it wasn't, you know, I Love Lucy or Leave it to Beaver, it was all murder. Yeah. Which is true. So let's, why don't we kill the people who taught us to murder? I was like, oh. Because there's the, there's the hint, especially when uh, Brad Pitt character is leaving uh, Spawn Ranch. I was like, oh. Okay, maybe they're going to be get killed as well. Because the whole time you're sitting here like, okay. Margot Robbie hasn't said much of a word at all. What's going on here? And then you realize they're going to kill Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Quentin Tarantino, you mad genius. And then then you assume, okay, then they're going to go gut Sharon Tate and her friends. That is far from what happens. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, it's also a good callback because uh, the first part of the film, I mean, the majority takes place in early February, 69. And the last 30 takes place in uh, early August when the murders happen. Yeah. And uh, in February in the film... Brad Pitt buys a uh, acid-soaked cigarette. Yeah. And, of course, uh, actually, she also mentioned that uh, between then, uh, DiCaprio's character went to uh, Italy, which, of course, I love because I love spaghetti westerns, and he started a bunch of them. So he gets his career kind of on a new track. He gets a uh, Italian wife <laughs> who doesn't speak a lick of English <laughs> and brings her back. I know it's Hollywood the 60s, but it's also Hollywood now. Yeah. 
and him and Pitt, he they're basically going to be like, listen, we're probably not going to work together anymore. So let's uh, let's get blind drunk one more night because that's the only way a friendship can really truly end, which I agree with. And of course, he comes back. He walks his dog high on acid. And then uh, DiCaprio's in his pool outside. His wife is sleeping, and the fa- the Manson family breaks in, and he is just high, doesn't realize that it's real, <laughs> and just starts laughing at them. <laughs> and uh, a lot of nice touches, especially, you know, the Manson murders. Uh, Tex actually did say, uh, I'm the devil, here to do his business. Yeah. So that was a nice little... Uh, Nice little touch of reality there, and then you're just like they're gonna they're gonna kill Brad Pitt and DiCaprio. What a what a savage move! And then uh, Pitt realizes, oh, I've seen you at Spawn Ranch before, so he kind of gets he kind of realizes, and he uh, he orders his dog to go attack Tex, and the dog just like starts biting his hand in his junk, <laughs> and then he starts beating on one of the Manson girls, and it was just like. And you realize, oh, oh, they're going to survive this. And it's just, because that's the thing. When you see it, when you go to a Quentin Tarantino movie, you expect hyper violence. And this film, Hateful Eight, you know, the first act kind of built towards it. But the second act was just all violence. Here, you don't get violence until the last 10 minutes. Oh, man. And yet it's maybe some of the best violence he's done in a long time. Oh, it was excellent. It was great brutal he slams like one of the girls heads on the uh fireplace <laughs> on the phone on the table i was like how is she still alive <laughs> and of course there's just stabbing the dog just biting text <laughs> and then uh then the girl the uh one of the final girls she just gets mad like just gets thrown through the uh the back uh window where the pool is and her just like what the this and she jumps in the pool with a knife and is just like yelling and uh, I was in a theater that I've been into many times and I think the the audio, the audio was a little higher than usual because her screams were just like piercing it was wonderful like because the Lion King was next to us <laughs> and the walls because that, that theater's getting renovated and I if you're in a theater there where the film next to you is loud, you you can hear it. So I can just imagine kids watching The Lion King, and there's just a dying girl's screams just <laughs> piercing into that. <laughs> Which, of course, with Tarantino Vines, I'm already laughing to begin with, but here I was just like, oh, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Oh, man. And then, uh, Peter, I told you this pre-show, mm-hmm. maybe my... <laughs> it, was, it was perfect. It was like we hear the stories about the flamethrower. He he learned to use it for like two weeks, three hours every day, and mm-hmm. we find out he, he got to keep the flamethrower. And he just burns this girl in the pool. It was superb violence oh like that's a way <laughs> that's a way to end the violence right there it was because that's the thing you know it's gonna happen but he wants you to be patient for this one film and even though it's not you know like Django or Inglorious Bastards even Hateful Eight where it's very you know there's a lot of it here it's very condensed but it's maybe the most brutal I've seen Quentin Tarantino in a long time oh man 
Like, there was just, oh, it was grotesque, it was bloody, it was uncomfortable, it was perfect. <laughs> Peter, I, I'll say this. If it wasn't for Endgame, that would have been the best ending to a movie this year. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you realize they all survived. The twist was they killed the Manson family. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Pitt's character knows where they are. So, uh, and of course he survives even though he gets stabbed non-lethally. And, you know, as he's going to the hospital, Leonardo DiCaprio is just in the street and, uh, Jay Sebring, uh, Sharon Tate's, uh, hairstylist and the guy who, uh, would have the, uh, Sebring International Raceway named after him in his honor. See, I know some stuff, kids. <laughs> Comes out like, what the hell was going on? <laughs> and which is just. To me, so funny, because he was one of the guys that were, was killed in real life. Oh. And DiCaprio's just, like, nonchalant, like, oh, these these, these hippies broke into my house, and we had to kill them. He's like, that's crazy! <laughs> I was like, I can't believe he's doing this. I can't believe he's getting away with this. <laughs> and then uh, Sharon Tate, you know, just pages through the, uh, the intercom. He's like, what's going on down there, Jay? And, you know, she tells him about it. And he's invited up, which, you know, fulfills the arc that he he now knows the Polanskis and uh, Sharon Tate. So his career will probably benefit from that. Yeah. And it's just it's just a crazy ending where Sharon Tate invites him into the house to have drinks with her and her friends. And that's it. That's it. That's the film. Sharon Tate survives completely unscathed. Talk about subverting expectations, Peter. That was unbelievable. Because there was there was a part toward the end where I was like, could she survive this? Could that be the ultimate twist? And Lord, and Lord as, as, it, as it was, <laughs> that was it. Yep. That was it. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, if you're patient with it, unlike Matt Mormon... <laughs> And you appreciate what it's doing, you'll. It might be one of your favorite films of the year. It certainly was for me. I will say you probably should see some Tarantino films before this, otherwise you're going to be unbelievably confused on why he directs like this. But it all makes sense. Oh man, it's a very slow burn, but when it gets hot, it gets unbelievably hot. Way to make a nice little pun there, Peter. Yeah. Well, that's all we can say about it, Quentin. We're happy to have you back, and we look forward to whatever psychotic thing you have next for us. If it's Star Trek, that's going to be... Oh, man. So, that'll do it for this edition of the Entertainment from the 573 Pod, everybody. Thank you guys for listening. You can check us out on all of our podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whichever, whichever way you get your podcasts. As Peter mentioned, you can go check us out on our YouTube channel, Podcast from the 573. Also, check out our other channel, Views from the 573. We just did an episode this week. We're coming out with one coming soon. Excited for that. We're rolling along in our football previews. So, everybody get ready for that and what's coming next with those podcasts. So, with that being said, everybody, thank you guys for tuning in. And we will talk to you guys next time.